Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, extremely brief housekeeping here. Simply to say that a few seats still remain for my event at the Wiltern in Los Angeles on July 11th with Mingyur Rinpoche. Mingyur is a great meditation master and the son of the greatest teacher I ever met, Tukurgan Rinpoche. And uh, that is a waking up related event. Uh, we'll be talking about meditation in the mind. Uh, again, July 11th in Los Angeles at the Wiltern Theater. It is nearly sold out, so if you're interested, you can check it out on my website at samharris.org forward slash events. Okay. Today I'm speaking with Benjamin Wittes. Benjamin is a legal journalist who's a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. And he's a co-founder of the Lawfare blog, which is a great source of unbiased information on U.S. national security and law. And I brought him on to do a post-mortem on the Mueller report. Seems to me the public understanding of what's in that report is fairly distorted by politics. So I wanted Benjamin to walk me through it. And um, if nothing else, I think you'll find this a, a very useful analysis of what Mueller found and what any reasonable person should believe about what he found. Needless to say, this is a moving target. Mueller may one day testify in Congress, but his findings in the report are remarkably clear and yet obfuscated to an astounding degree. In any case, I hope you find this useful. Now I bring you Benjamin Wittes. I am here with Benjamin Wittes. Benjamin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. I discovered you, as, as many people have, on your fantastic blog, Dealing with All Things Legal, the Lawfare blog. And I'm, I'm hoping we're going to do a, a very accessible and fairly comprehensive, at least up to the, to the moment, autopsy on the Mueller report. But before we, we dive into the matter at hand, how did you get to focus on what you have now focused on for, it seems, quite some time. What, what, is, your, what is your legal and political history? Yeah, so I, I have a weird history, uh, which is that I, I am not a lawyer, contrary to a lot of people's understanding. I'm, I'm a sort of legal journalist by background, and I was the, I wrote the Washington Post's legal affairs editorials for nine or 10 years, including the period starting just before the Clinton impeachment through 9-11 and the period after that up through 2006 when I left. And during that period, I became, I had always had an interest in the sort of law of national security dating back from before my Washington Post days. But during that period, for reasons that are probably pretty obvious, I, I became much more acutely interested in it. And I left at the beginning of 2007 to come to Brookings and focus on a book I wanted to write on, the, on that subject. And uh, Lawfare developed a few years later, I guess in the fall of 2010. And by that time, this set of subjects was essentially all of what I worked on. And uh, with a few narrow exceptions, it was really 
that was my career by that point. And so over time, Lawfare has just been kind of the project that, you know, bit me in the ass and wouldn't let go. Mm. Well, it's easy to see why it hasn't let go, because it's such a um, wonderful sanity check for many of us who just need to figure out what is what end is up in these matters. Well, thank you. How would you describe your your own political leanings? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, when when Lawfare was founded, I, I think most people regarded us as, and there were only three of us who wrote it at the time, most people regarded us as the sort of respectable right flank of a lot of the issues that we wrote about. So we were largely writing from a point of view of trying to evaluate government policy and sort of be helpful to practicing lawyers in areas like detention and kind of drone strikes and Guantanamo and that sort of set of things. And the three of us were all, you know, I think what united us was that we sort of did not accept kind of a lot of the sort of conventional human rights and academic orthodoxies that were prevailing at the time. And so we were thought of as I guess the right of that debate, that was, you know, not, that was a reductionist way to understand who we were. And particularly as the site grew and we started adding other people, we were always politically diverse. And we, all, we really tried to, I don't think you will find a more exquisitely bipartisan or nonpartisan masthead in American life and letters than, than Lawfare. My own, so so I, I mean, the site doesn't have any positions. Mm. It doesn't have any politics. It does have a group of people who have very, you know, different attitudes toward a lot of different issues. I would describe my personal politics as quite centrist, at least until the the politics of the country shifted very dramatically, very suddenly. And now I, I suppose I've had a political orientation kind of forced upon me by the circumstances uh, in that I, I am very alarmed by the incumbent president and, and I am opposed to what Donald Trump is trying to do and what he stands for. And in that sense, at a, at a very personal level, I have sort of taken the view that, that in a two-party system, if one really is alarmed by the behavior of one of the parties, one doesn't really have much choice but to support the other. Mm. That said, that is my personal view, not the institutional view of lawfare. Okay, so I, I'm hoping that the conversation we produce here will be of interest and perhaps even persuasive to people who are not nearly as critical of the president as I am. By the way, can I, can I just say that that is the ambition of lawfare in general, mm -hmm. that, you know, I want and, and has been since long before Donald Trump, when I, when we started it and we were writing stuff about, you know, Guantanamo litigation, my ambition for the site at the time was that it should be as useful to the lawyers who represent the Guantanamo detainees as it is for the government lawyers on the other side. And it should be as useful to people who disagree with me on the merits of certain things as who agree with me. And I feel the same way now. I mean, we do a lot of stuff that 
you know, the goal of which is to be useful to whoever is working on these issues or thinking about them or trying to understand them, irrespective of whether they agree with the author in question or agree with me more particularly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we both know, that's easier said than done, and especially in this case. I, mean, I, I just find, you know, I, I have been accused of having a whopping case of Trump derangement syndrome. And, um, you know, I really, I really haven't been shy about expressing my antipathy for the president. And I mean, antipathy is not too strong a word. I mean, he, he embodies almost everything that I find detestable in other people. I might be advertising myself as a candidate for a Freudian case study, but I find it a continual source of shock that half of the country isn't appalled by what this man says and does, mostly says. So I, I, I want to, you know, just bracket that, and I want us to be careful in just talking about what we think is objectively true here, and what happened, what the Mueller report attests to, and what it suggests about Trump, and what we, you know, those of us who are concerned about his tenure and wanted to end uh, in 2020, what we should do and say about all this. I guess I want to start with, before we get into what is in the report, I want to see if you you share my sense of how badly the release of it was handled, at least for for those of us who cared about it having a useful impact. What are your thoughts on how this was dropped and, and the amount of time the president and his surrogates had to spin their what I think will prove a a false interpretation of its contents. Yeah, so it's a very complicated question. And let me, let's try to break out uh, at least three and maybe four discrete aspects of the release. Because I think the merits of them are quite different. So the one on which I think Bill Barr is taking a bad rap is his handling of the redactions and the amount of time between when he received the document and when he made the release. And, you know, a 400-plus page document that has to be reviewed for a bunch of different government equities that may produce redactions, that is a labor-intensive process. And I don't think that a three-week, almost four-week lag from his first seeing the document to a public release is a terribly bad outcome. Mm -hmm. Nor do I think, actually, that the substance of the redactions for all that a lot of Democrats are outraged by them are that objectionable. And I think he did a reasonably creditable job of saying here's what I'm going to do, here's the process I'm going to use, here's the time frame I'm going to do it in, and then doing more or less what he said he was going to do. And the result was a document that we can all read. There are some frustrating redactions in there. There are some ones that are probably a little too aggressive in certain areas. But by and large, everybody knows more or less what Bob Mueller found. And I, by and large, do not have a serious complaint about the way Barr handled the logistics and mechanics of the review and redaction process itself. Mm. The second question 
is, and I'm doing these in ascending order of what I think of as outrageousness, is the letter that he wrote two days after he'd received the document. And that, I think, is very hard to justify. And I think for anybody who hasn't read the piece that Charlie Savage wrote in the New York Times that actually shows the full quotation of every quote from the report that Barr put in that letter, I think it is very hard to excuse the degree of distortion that arose from the selective quotations in that letter. Mm. And I, I, I do think that letter was substantively distortive of Mueller's meaning, and I, therefore was not at all surprised that Mueller complained of exactly that in his letter to Barr. And so I think, you know, if you're going to take three weeks to release the document, which I think is reasonable, it pays not to have distorted its meaning in advance of those three weeks so that the president then has this long period of time to to trumpet what turns out to be at least a complicated and in some important respects, a kind of false narrative about what the report contains. And I think Barr bears a lot of responsibility for that. The third area, which I think is arguably even worse, is the contents of his press conference the morning that the document was released. And in that press conference, he repeatedly used terms that are you know, simply presidential talking points, not, by the way, legal talking points, mm. but actual, like, historical talking points. So to say, for the attorney general to say repeatedly that, the, that Mueller found no collusion is, uh, you know, an appropriate thing for, I suppose, for a spin doctor to do on Fox News. But it is not an appropriate thing for the attorney general to do from the Great Hall of the Justice Department. And it's really, you know, an exercise in, in, in messaging that I think was, you know, beneath the dignity of the Justice Department and certainly should have been beneath Barr's personal dignity. So I think, you know, I think there was, I by and large agree with you that the rollout was very unfortunate. I just think that some of the some of the criticism of it focuses on what, for me, are the wrong things. Right, right. Well, we'll talk about conspiracy versus collusion once we get into the, the body of the, the report. I just, one other kind of framing effect, which I think has had significant consequences and it really shouldn't have, is undoubtedly there were some people who had false expectations about what this report was likely to produce. But it seems to me much more of a case of Trump and his supporters spreading falsehoods about what most people's expectations actually were, right? So it's like the fact that Trump isn't being led away in an orange jumpsuit as a result of this report, or the fact that conspiracy wasn't proven, right? The fact that, that we don't have proof that Trump or or people running his campaign conspired in advance with Russians to hack the election and or to hack the DNC emails and to help him get into the White House thereby. I mean, that, that, that's as much as I was hoping this report could destabilize the president politically, it never occurred to me that that would be 
what was proven there. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but it just a part of the spin I'm encountering here is this triumphal sense that we took a hard swing at the ball, we, the president's critics, took a hard swing at the ball and missed entirely, whereas the ball being described was not a ball I ever was aiming at. So I feel very much the same way. And I do, I do think that there are a few caveats that I'd add to that. So one of them is that, as you acknowledge, there were some people who had, uh, frankly, delusional expectations of what the report was going to produce. Uh, and, you know, there were people who were as recently as a few weeks ago talking about, you know, will they revisit the Office of Legal Counsel opinion on whether the president can be indicted, right? Will they? And there were a lot of people who seemed to expect a finding on Russian electoral interference that very directly implicated Donald Trump in criminal activity. And I suppose if you're one of those people that the results of the, the findings of the report are, must be very disappointing. I, am, I was never one of those people. I believed it absolutely needed to be investigated. And I am perfectly satisfied with a finding that, you know, Russians committed criminal acts in hacking Democratic emails and in running a fraudulent social media campaign. And that individuals, when had, you know, committed criminal acts in lying to investigators, but that the nature of the interactions between the Russians and people associated with Donald Trump did not uh, themselves amount to criminal conspiracy or other criminal activity. That doesn't trouble me particularly at all. And I, if and is not even especially surprising to me, given uh, what we knew about, you know, given how easy it is to avoid entering into a conspiracy with people who are, you know, operating to some degree to your benefit mm. and with your knowledge. And so I, I don't find it especially surprising, unlike a lot of people in the, I, I don't find it upsetting. I I think it would have been horrifying had there in fact been a criminal conspiracy. I would have been wanted absolutely wanted to see it prosecuted and I would have wanted I certainly wanted an, the investigation to proceed to the point of satisfaction on that point. It has done so. I'm satisfied with the outcome and I think the report is immensely illuminating as to what we can as a historical matter hold Donald Trump and the people around him accountable for. Mm. Well, I want to get to that because there, there's much more they can be held accountable for. And that much more was what I was anticipating would be borne out. Let's just give a high-level snapshot of what this document is. It's, there are two volumes. How, how would you describe their contents? So I would describe the two volumes as having four, between them, four major sets of findings. The first is, and these are roughly in the order that they take place in the two documents. The first three are all part of volume one, and they go like this. The first is that it substantively clears the president and his people 
on matters concerning the Russian social media operation. That is, the Russians ran a criminal social media operation that was a conspiracy to deprive the United States of regulatory authority over electoral and, and, and other matters. And that while people associated with the president were duped by this into engaging with the Russian material, nobody on the U.S. side, including nobody associated with Donald Trump, knowingly participated in this scheme. That's the first major finding. And I think we should be all critics of Donald Trump on the left, on the right, and in the center should be willing to accept that at face value. The yes, there was a Russian conspiracy. No, it was not one that the president or his people are implicated in, except in the sense that we all get duped by fraudsters sometimes. Right. Let's just place a footnote here to acknowledge that many of the president's defenders, this is perhaps true still of many, deny that the Russians did anything of substance in the 2016 election. And one of the things for which you know, I hold the president accountable is his apparent denial of this problem and the slowness with which he acknowledged the mounting evidence. Which continues to this day. Yeah. I mean, the president had a conversation the, the other day with Vladimir Putin and was asked afterwards whether he discussed future electoral interference with him, and he said it didn't come up. So he continues to not want to face the consequences of this for his worldview with respect to Vladimir Putin. Right. But that said, there's a difference between being a dupe and being a criminal. Yeah. And I think the portrayal by Mueller of the Trump people in this section of the, of the investigation is uh, that of they were duped. They may have been foolish for engaging with social media content that they didn't, shouldn't have been, should have been more savvy about. He does note that no Clinton campaign people were duped by the Russian social media campaign. So you can say they were, they were foolish and silly and into stuff that helped them and maybe, but they weren't knowingly conspiring with anybody. And I think that we should just take that at face value. So this, this brings me to the second one, which is the second area, which is the hacking of emails. And this one's much more complicated because on the one hand, there is no evidence discussed in the report that anybody associated with the Trump campaign was involved in a conspiracy to hack the emails. And it is simply not the case that there is no evidence in this part of the report that there was no engagement with, knowing engagement with people who were both responsible for that hacking and responsible for the release of those emails. And, and I think the, the sort of no collusion narrative that has emerged as to this part of the report is frankly dishonest. And so let me just tick off a few things that the report found that, you know, if I were a rhetorician, I, I would not describe as no collusion. Right. Maybe, maybe we should distinguish between conspiracy and collusion here as well. 
Right. So look, conspiracy is a criminal offense. It's, it's written in the U.S. code. It has known elements, and it requires that two people have an agreement as to a law that they're going to violate and a course of conduct that is going to violate that law and that they take overt steps to doing so. So if you you know, are thinking about robbing a bank and you ask me, would you, you want to help me rob the bank? And I say, you know, sure. Uh, and then I start doing Amazon searches for your disguise, your mask or your gun, then we're guilty of a conspiracy, right? But if I'm aware that you're going to rob the bank and you're going to use the money from the, the proceeds of the robbery in a fashion that might help me, but I never agree to anything with you and I don't take affirmative steps in support of what you're doing. I'm just really pleased that you're doing it. What if you're at your next rally in front of tens of thousands of people watched by millions, you uh, champion your friend's cause in robbing the bank? So, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of people who, you know, publicly endorse criminal activity. Right. And they do it without I mean, think of all the people who say nice things about ISIS in public, right? And in publicly encourage terrorist movements to which they're sympathetic. Yeah. The yeah. Irish Republican Army had a lot of people who spoke up for it in the United States back in the day, right? And as long as you keep a distance between yourself and the criminal activity of those organizations, you're actually not guilty of, terror, of, of conspiracy to commit terrorism. And so here are the things, so it's really important to keep separate the question of, is there enough evidence that they participated in a criminal conspiracy to indict and prosecute people for participation in that? from did they behave in a way with respect to the Russian hacking that we should judge very harshly? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer, I have no reason to doubt Mueller's conclusion as to the legal question, but I also have no reason to doubt that a reasonable person reading his findings as to the substantive conduct in which they engaged should be appalled and disapproving and judgmental. So let me, you know, having stip stipulating that they did not engage in criminal conspiracy that one could prove to the standards of the criminal law, which is to say beyond, prove with admissible evidence beyond a reasonable doubt every element of the offense. Let's talk about what the report found that they did do. All right. So one of them was in touch directly with the Guccifer II persona of the Russian intelligence, military intelligence. That's the group that did the hacking. And there was direct contact between one member of the Trump entourage and, and Guccifer II. Uh, they were deeply involved in sort of thinking, you know, coordinating their media strategies around WikiLeaks releases mm. of the hacked emails. And they were actually in touch with WikiLeaks on the subject. So they weren't coordinating with the Russians about the hacking of the emails, but they were coordinating with WikiLeaks about the release of emails, or at least trying to. As you noted, the president gave a public speech in which he publicly encouraged hacking of Clinton's emails. 
And here's a part that we did not know before the release of the Mueller report, which is that right after doing so, and remember that the president has tried to dismiss that speech as a joke, but he immediately after that speech directed Michael Flynn, his then campaign national security advisor, to try to retrieve the emails that he was talking about in that speech, which is to say not the emails that the Russians had stolen, but emails that he believed had been hacked from Hillary Clinton's old private email Mm. server. And so this led to a sustained effort by people on the fringes of the campaign at Flynn's instigation, although not his direct control, to engage with Russian hackers to retrieve these mythical stolen emails. Now, this, of course, is not the same emails that the Russians released and actually stole. And in fact, there doesn't seem to be a lot of reason to to believe that these emails actually existed at all or that the people that they got involved with were real Russian hackers. But it's fair to say that the effort on the part of the Trump campaign, and remember, this is all taking place around the same period of time that there's the Trump Tower meeting, right, where they are promised dirt on Hillary's campaign and Hillary, and they, they, are, they respond enthusiastically to that. So it's fair to say that they were very open to receiving the, the, the fruits of these hacks, that they went after, they encouraged the Russians to do this hack, to do a different hack. They went after emails that they believed to be in the possession of Russian hackers. And so my view is basically if they didn't violate the law here and didn't manage a conspiracy, it was more out of sheer incompetence and conspiracy theorizing, they were going after emails that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. It wasn't because they were morally above engaging with the Russians over hacked emails. And so I think the picture on this one is very damaging to the president, at least if you bother to actually dive into what they really did. It's it's interesting. It's analogous to what happens later in the report around the crime of obstructing justice. So as we we'll talk about why he was not charged and and could not be charged with that. But it was not for want of trying that he didn't get the the Mueller investigation strangled in his crib because Correct. he he you know, he kept ordering people to do things which they judged to be either frankly illegal or not sane. And so it was just, it was really, it was a kind of a halo of insubordination that surrounded the president where he would give orders that were not followed. And it's only because they weren't followed that he hasn't been, uh, well, I mean, it turns out he couldn't be uh, on Mueller's analysis convicted of any crime while in office. But we would be talking about, you know, laws being broken had people obeyed his edicts. Yeah, and we'll, I mean, we'll get to that when we talk about obstruction. Yeah. I actually think on the obstruction stuff, the evidence of actual criminality is is pretty overwhelming. But I agree with you to the extent it's not even more overwhelming. It's because a lot of things that were 
demanded to happen by the president were not carried out. And that actually does mitigate to some degree the obstructive outcome, although not the obstructive behavior. Yeah. So the third area, before we get to obstruction, though, the third area is uh, what to me is the most dramatic, which is this, uh, or the most dramatic on the, on, in the volume one set, which is this hundred plus pages of description of the contacts between Russians, government officials, and their intermediaries and people associated with Donald Trump in the period around the campaign and the transition. And of course, the background to this is that Trump was saying at this time to anybody who will listen, I have nothing to do with Russia, right? And he had any way of any number of ways of denying that his campaign had had contacts with with the Russians or uh, and of course, the press has revealed a lot of these contacts in the past. And so the fact that they took place is not a particular surprise. The exhaustive catalog of them is truly astonishing. And, you know, we can go into them in more detail, but it takes literally 100 plus pages to describe them all. And what Mueller finds is that uh, neither individually nor collectively do they amount to a conspiracy to this joint meeting of the minds as to a criminal purpose and that conspiracy law requires. And so, therefore, though you have this incredibly suspicious pattern of conduct and contacts, and some of which are really weird, there's no, it does not. Um, overcome the requirement of conspiracy law that there be some you know agreement toward an illegal purpose and overt actions in support of that so you know again one can say well therefore he's been cleared of collusion or one could say that the pattern of behavior that muller documents is bizarre concerning from a, a counterintelligence and and potential, you know, questions of what the Russians, what leverage they might have on him, etc., but does not, you know, does not obviously violate any particular set of criminal laws. And so I think that's the sort of third big basket that volume one of the document reflects. Yeah. And now volume two. All right. So volume two is where the most obvious criminality is. And you know, this is all of what is now volume one was the focus, was, were the set of questions that the FBI was investigating before the president fired the head of the FBI and tried to then interfere with, in a hundred different ways, the subsequent conduct of the investigation. So the rest of the report, volume two, is all about the president's interactions with the investigation as it tried to find out the answers to the questions in volume one. Mm. And the, you know, the gravamen of it is that the president behaved in a way that Mueller did not say was obstruction of justice for reasons we can talk about it, but very conspicuously declined to say was not obstruction of justice. And if you read the accounts of the episodes in question, 
I personally find it extremely difficult to read that evidence as anything other than a long-term pattern of attempts to obstruct an investigation by the president, whether that's primarily a concern for criminal purposes or primarily a concern for impeachment purposes is a complicated question, or maybe it's both, but it's, I, I don't see how this pattern of behavior is anything other than terribly disturbing and terribly well-documented. And by the way, unlike the behavior described in volume one, it is all the personal behavior of Donald Trump himself. It's not campaign hangers on like George Papadopoulos or, mm. or Carter Page. It's not what's going on within the organization. It is, this is the personal behavior page after page after page of Donald Trump in his capacity as president, trying to shut down, limit, and obstruct an investigation in which he has the deepest of personal interests. All right. So I want to just revisit some of your points there because it this can be this can be confusing and I'm sure it's confusing for anyone disposed to think that the president is getting an unfair deal here and none of this should be thought about in the first place. So let's just talk about what what Mueller did and didn't do here. So he he didn't render a judgment about obstruction and this was because he was hamstrung by this office of legal counsel ruling this OLC ruling which he took to mean, and I, I don't think this is necessarily controversial, but it, it does give an air of pointlessness to this whole inquiry. He took it to mean that he lacked jurisdiction to render a judgment about obstruction. So he's, he's investigating as to whether or not the president obstructed justice here. But from the very beginning, he understands that because the, the special counsel can't charge the president with a crime, really this investigation can only either exonerate him or decline to exonerate him. So in the face of that restriction, he produced this report and very clearly declined to exonerate the president. And yet Barr and the president in the interim, and even to this day, have endlessly spun that non-exoneration as exoneration. Yeah. So Let's, uh, so at a purely mechanical level, here's Mueller's reasoning. The Office of Legal Counsel says the president can't be indicted while he's in office. Leave, that, leave aside for another day the question of whether that opinion is right or wrong. It's right. a complicated issue. But Mueller interprets it, certainly correctly, by the way, as binding him. Mm. So he cannot indict the president for obstruction of justice. Therefore, he concludes that there's really only two questions. Well, three questions. One is, did anybody else commit obstruction of justice? And his answer to that is no. And for exactly the reason that you described earlier, which is all these people that the president tries to get to do his these illegal things, they all decline to do them. And so nobody else is guilty of obstruction of justice. Number two, there's the question, can the president be indicted after he leaves office? So the answer to that question is yes, the president can be indicted after he leaves office. Mm. And so if the president is guilty of a crime, it is important 
to have the record clear, to have everybody interviewed while memories are fresh, to have all the documents so that a future prosecutor can make an appropriate judgment at whenever the president leaves office, assuming the statutes of limitations have not run. So that is the, the legal justification for doing the investigation at all. And the thing, well, I'll just point out that Mueller is, is explicit about this in a way that seems fairly damning. I mean, he says that, you know, he wanted to preserve the evidence seemingly for future prosecution. And he was, you know, in his view, he was hemmed in not just by the OLC opinion, but by what he called the, the fairness doctrine, which would prevent him from making any significant allegations because you can't indict a president, there could be there would be no, you know, timely legal process that would exonerate him should these allegations be false. So on some level, he's saying that, listen, I have to be, you know, even if I found a few severed heads in the Oval Office, I wouldn't be able to say much of anything about the president being guilty of a crime. I would just need to preserve the evidence until such a time as, you know, those interested in prosecuting him could. Correct. And so, you know, his position, which, you know, again, whether it's right or wrong, it's extremely principled. The position is, since I'm not allowed to render the judgment that I think he committed, that I'm not allowed to indict him, I shouldn't evaluate right now whether he should be indicted. That should be up to the, the person who actually has the capacity to seek a grand jury indictment of him once he's left office. And in the meantime, it should be up to Congress, which has the impeachment power, which is the, the mode by which we evaluate presidential misconduct while the president remains in office. And so he's, his judgment is, I shouldn't even evaluate the question under a traditional sort of prosecutorial framework. So what I'm going to do is just lay out all the evidence. And I'm not going to say whether I think elements of the offenses are met. I'm just going to tell what happened. Now, this is, of course, a private report for the attorney general, not meant as a public document, although Mueller probably knew that elements of it would become public. And so I think we can assume to some degree he was trying to provide a roadmap for congressional thinking in that regard Hmm. as well. So I think that's, by and large, his reasoning. And he does explicitly say the one exception here is that if I could clearly exonerate the president, I would. I can't, and I'm not going to. So I'm not going to. Yeah. And now, how is it that this is being spun successfully as exoneration? Well, so I think there's two major elements of that. One is that any time a prosecutor doesn't bring a case, the person who has not had a case brought against him gets to say, Hmm. I wasn't indicted, and gets to conflate the absence of indictment with, I've been cleared. Even in a case where it was impossible that you would be indicted no matter what you had done. Well, don't quibble, right? (laughs) I mean, any, any criminal defendant is going, or potential criminal defendant, the day they don't get indicted, is going to claim substantive vindication. And so one aspect of the answer to your question is that the president is behaving like any other criminal suspect who gets off without an indictment. Right. The other answer to your question is that the attorney general did him a remarkably good turn. 
which is that the attorney general interpreted Barr's decision not to answer this question as license for himself to answer this question and wrote in his letter that this leaves it to the attorney general to decide whether an obstruction happened here and I decide that it didn't and that the evidence wouldn't support a criminal case. Now, there are two ways to understand this and I wanna be fair to Bill Barr. So one way to understand it is Bill Barr has known views of the difficult on the subject of how difficult it is and should be to apply the obstruction statutes to presidential action. And so he was interpreting the evidence in light of his own views, which are presumably sincerely held. And that is his good faith judgment based on some based on his own honest understanding of the relationship between the obstruction statutes and Article Two of the Constitution. Mm. The other way to understand it is that Bill Barr was spinning for the president and became a kind of advocate for the president in this process and interpreted the evidence in the light most favorable to the president who whom he serves. And you know, different people are going to who have different levels of admiration for or distaste for Bill Barr are going to read that situation very differently. Do both interpretations seem viable after Barr's performance on Capitol Hill? So my view is that the reality has probably has elements of both. I have no doubt that Bill Barr has very strong views on this subject and that those views are sincerely held. He wrote them in an 18-page memo before he was ever, you know, nominated to be attorney general. And those are consistent with views that he has held and held publicly for a very long time. And so I don't doubt that there's an element of this that reflects his honest viewpoint. I also think that the distortions, that the descriptions that he gave of the evidence in his in his Senate testimony last week are extremely hard to square with what Bob Mueller actually found. And so I think it is, it's very hard for me to look at the situation and see his reading of the evidence as a dispassionate one, rather than at least inflected by a solicitude for the president's position. Well, one question I have for you, and this is the one thing that Mueller didn't do that seems kind of shocking to me, or at least in some counterfactual situation, one imagines he did it and the world looked very differently the day after. Why didn't he subpoena the president? So his, his explanation for this is that it would have taken a lot of time and they had the information that they needed without it. What they didn't have is the supernova of perjury that would have dawned the moment you put him in front of a microphone swearing to tell the truth. Correct, although you are not actually allowed to put somebody in front of a grand jury or, or in order to have him commit perjury. Or a so-called perjury trap. Yeah, the, the, once you do that with that intention, that actually becomes a dangerous form of entrapment. Now. I don't want to overstate that because you're, it's perfectly okay to put somebody in front of a grand jury 
knowing that the person is a liar and believing that the if asked reasonable questions, he may well perjure himself, but you're not allowed to do it in order to have him commit perjury. And that's a, a, an important distinction that I think Bob Mueller would have uh, observed scrupulously. So here is, I, that said, I do agree with you that the explanation given in the report is not wholly adequate because, you know, the president, th- there's a, a lot of things that you would want to understand the president's state of mind in order to really evaluate. So here's, but here's my, my gut as to what the components of the answer, in addition to the ones they stated, were. Number one, since they're not going to render a, a, a prosecutorial judgment on obstruction, they don't need to have this fight yet. So if, if the day some future prosecutor decides to consider actually bringing a case against former President Trump, they can subpoena him at that point. Yeah, unfortunately, that, that will give the, the inevitable refuge that he will seek in a failing memory more plausibility. Correct. He, no None of these options are without problems. Secondly, had they decided to go forward with a subpoena to the president, they would have had, depending on when they did it, they would have had to ask either Matt Whitaker or then Bill Barr would have had the opportunity to forbid it. And so I think not only do they have a potentially big legal fight with the president that would have taken some time, but they have the the genuine possibility of not being allowed to proceed and provoking a major internal confrontation. Now, that may have been something that they should have done anyway and, and let the chips fall where they may. But I suspect the possibility of blowing up the relationship with the Justice Department probably weighed on them a little bit. Mm. And then the third element is that there is this, this odd spot in the, in the report where the president that where the president is, there's some material redacted for grand jury reasons with respect to the president's possible testimony. And that suggests to me that at some point a subpoena was issued and that it was withdrawn. Hmm. And there's a couple reasons why it may have been withdrawn. One is that the president agreed to answer questions in written form, and they may have, they may have, that may have been the compromise that allowed them to withdraw the subpoena. The second, which I would not exclude the possibility of, is that the president may have asserted the Fifth Amendment. Hmm. And so I think the full story of why this why this fight never happened is a complicated one and we don't have all the data on it yet and someday when you know when the Mueller people write their books uh we may learn a little bit more about it why would the fact of him invoking the 5th amendment be redacted is that prejudicial or something because if you first of all a subpoena is grand jury information so the fact of the issuance of a subpoena would be redacted as grand jury information. And then there's only a few reasons that you would withdraw it. One is if you were, if there were a Fifth Amendment assertion, they would withdraw it on that basis. For any criminal suspect, by the way, not just the president, you don't put somebody in front of a grand jury knowing that they're going to assert the Fifth. Right. And the second reason is if they had some negotiated agreement. And beyond, beyond that, I can't fathom why there would be this redacted passage in that location. Yeah, so that's, I mean, I don't know what the answer is, but there's, 
some possibility that there actually was a subpoena at one point. Mm -hmm. So now the day we're recording this, there are some rumors that Mueller may testify before Congress himself in a couple of weeks. I I don't know what will be true once we release this, but do you think that's going to happen? And and what do you think would happen should it happen? Yeah. So there's a few, this is a really interesting issue. So first of all, it will happen eventually. Hmm. Um, And it'll happen because Bob Mueller, first of all, because the Democrats really want it to happen. And Bob Mueller has, as best as I can tell, no reason to not do it. And, you know, there's only so much the Justice Department will be willing to do to prevent it. And therefore, it's going to happen either when, while Mueller is still formally working at the Justice Department or afterwards. I predict a very big day in front of C-SPAN. Correct, which brings, me to the, which brings me to the second point. So people's sense of these moments is highly conditioned by Jim Comey, who is an enormously charismatic individual, who is an electrifying storyteller, and who is loquacious and, you know, wh- whether one loves him or hates him, really good television. Bob Mueller is n- none of those things. He is dry, sort of actively dry. He is, he's extremely smart, but he's not, you know, looking to dazzle anybody. He's not, he's not going to be emotively communicative. And he is, and that could risk a giant buildup to a moment that you know, he ends up answering a lot of questions with as few words as humanly possible. That would be very consistent with Bob Mueller, who he is and the way he behaves. Mm-hmm. He's not a, he, he, there is not a show, bo- bone of showmanship in his body. This brings me to the other possibility. One of the things about being as publicly silent as Bob Mueller has been for two years of being in the national spotlight the way he has is he has an enormous reservoir of credibility and people have been waiting to hear him what he has to say for a very long time. And that means that the opposite possibility is true as well, that he goes in there and the entire country is hanging on every one of those very spare number of words yeah. that the oracle speaks. Yeah, and he has stored a large reservoir of trust and credibility. And, you know, it will be very interesting to see at that stage how he answers your question from earlier in this conversation of whether Barr's characterizations of his work was reasonable, whether when he says that there's insufficient evidence to conclude something, does he mean that he's clearing somebody of that? Or does he mean read the facts and draw your own judgments about how to, how to, how to interpret them? Does he show any hint of what he thinks, how, he, how serious he thinks mm-hmm. the conduct at issue was? And I think all of those are questions we are not going to know the answer to until we hear from him. And that will be a very big day. It may be a riveting one, or it may be for a lot of people a kind of disappointing one if he's the sort of less communicative Bob Mueller that he often is. 
Is there some reason, legal or otherwise, why he wouldn't be more forthcoming in that context about his uh, how he views the president and, and his behavior? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of people are really, a, a lot of people, partic- particularly people steeped in the dynamics of federal prosecution, are very allergic to the idea that prosecutors should say more than either yes or no, you committed this crime, right? If we're going to indict you, we charge you, we write what you did, and we are prepared to prove it in court. Other than that, we should shut up. And if you think about the criticism that Comey got for the disposition, the public disposition of the Hillary Clinton email matter, where he went out and really, uh, you know, just described the evidence. He didn't, you know. Yeah. Although there we had a bit of a timing issue. uh, Indeed. Although that was when the investigation ended, right? Yeah. And so what the, you know, the, the, the scope of his editorializing was really limited to two words, extremely and careless in that order. And that was a bit of a scandal when he said that. And so that actually, I think, does reflect the degree to which people don't believe that prosecutors should be editorializing. The fact that that was as, you know, received as badly as it was by a huge number of people. And I think Mueller has erred in the other direction, which is he doesn't say anything. There's very little or no editorializing in this report to the point that it is, you know, actually hard to, you have to revert to to citing facts in the report to respond to the president's claims of vindication, because there's no place where Mueller says, and when I say no conspiracy, I do not mean there was no evidence of collusion. There was, in fact, a lot of evidence of collusion. I mean only that there is insufficient evidence of conspiracy to bring a criminal case. He never actually does the work to say that. Mm. You have to do it for him. And and I have a lot of respect for that, actually. I think it's probably the right call, but it does make it very difficult to, you know, have a you know, to resist the sort of demagogic claims of vindication that the the president and his defenders are 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 claiming for the report that in fact does not say anything of the kind. Okay, well Benjamin, finally I just want to talk about the politics around impeachment and just how you view them and, and what you think the Democrats should do if their goal is to um get Trump out of the Oval Office as, as certainly as possible. What do you think they're, they're likely to do and what do you think they, they should do? So I'm not a political analyst and I try to stay in my lane. But let me, I'll say a few things. So first of all, if the question is, does the evidence describe impeachable offenses? The answer to that question is unambiguously that it does. Let's just explain why that would be the case, because high crimes and misdemeanors sounds like surely there must be a law broken provably before you could impeach somebody. But as many people now know, it's not so simple as that. Yeah. So high crimes and misdemeanors is a term of art in the Constitution that is not a reference to the U.S. criminal code. 
uh, it actually is older than the U.S. criminal code, right? So the, the Constitution is ratified and there is no federal criminal law at that time. And yet the founders are referring to some body of unacceptable presidential behavior that you can remove somebody from office for. If the president of the United States one day took a lawn chair onto the front lawn of the White House and said, I'm just not going to do the job anymore. It's boring. I don't like it. I'm just going to sit here and play chess with people in Lafayette Square. No one would suggest he had committed a crime. And yet he would be impeached and removed from office for it. So there's a the the set of things that are impeachable offenses are include a lot of crimes, mm. but they it is not coextensive with the criminal code. I believe Donald Trump committed criminal acts documented in volume two of this report. He also committed uh, impeachable offenses. And to me, the fundamental impeachable offense here is it's threefold. One is the attempt, serial attempt, abusive attempt to use his power to influence the conduct of a law enforcement investigation and an intelligence investigation that affected him very personally out of fear that it would implicate him. And he did that through many different means in fashions that I think were criminal. They are also impeachable. It's a fundamental abuse of power. The second is the, and this one does not get talked about enough, but I think is probably the single most dangerous thing that he did, is the serial effort to use the FBI to investigate his political opponents. Mm. And I cannot stress to you how pernicious that is in a society that purports to have law as a discipline at least autonomous from, if not independent from who is in power over whom. And if we live in a society where it is okay for Donald Trump to call up an FBI investigation of Hillary Clinton, it is, that is a very, very dangerous road to go down. He went down it a lot. Just, uh, just to hit that from the other side, what would you do with the Trump supporters who want to flip that around and say, well, the FBI investigated Trump and President Obama wiretapped Trump Tower was good for the goose, is good for the gander. Yeah. So the answer to the latter point is that they're wrong. The President Obama did not wiretap Trump Tower. So that did not happen, right. actually. The answer to the former point, and this is goes to the core of intelligence and law enforcement under the rule of law. This was not a situation where Barack Obama called up Jim Comey and said, Donald Trump is doing too well. Go after him, please. And Comey said, yes, sir, Mr. President, and sort of opened an investigation of Donald Trump. This was a situation in which a partner intelligence service gave the FBI information about Russian contact with somebody associated with the Trump campaign, George Papadopoulos. And that constituted a predicate. That's a, a term for information that justifies opening an investigation of that person, not of the Trump campaign, mm -hmm. but 
they opened a counterintelligence investigation of that incident. And the difference is, in one situation, you had information that the FBI, in its professional assessment, considered adequate to or necessitating investigation, right? In the other situation, you had the political preference of the guy in power. He wants Jeff Sessions to investigate Hillary Clinton, not him. So he says that. There's no predicate for that investigation. And that difference is the difference between using power to go after people you don't like and using power to investigate crimes or national security risks. And that is the foundational post-Watergate line that the intelligence and law enforcement communities had to draw after the abuses of the Nixon and, 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 and sort of post-war intelligence period, the Church Commission, Committee and Pike Committee abuses. Mm. So the third, that's the second area, and I think it's not getting nearly enough attention. The third area is the effort by the president to get witnesses not to cooperate with federal law enforcement. And this, he did this publicly with respect to Michael Cohen, both through you know, coaxing and praise in public and through threats. He did it with Manafort. He did it with, to a lesser extent, with Flynn. And I believe that the specter of the president of the United States trying to coax witnesses to not cooperate with a federal investigation, I don't care if it's criminal. A man who does that should not be the president. So if the question is, is it an impeachable offense? Does, does volume two describe impeachable offenses? I think the answer to that question is unambiguously that it does. Mm. If the question is, should the Democrats move to impeach Donald Trump? You know, that question gets into a whole lot of questions about, you know, do you think that he would benefit politically from it such that it would make it more likely that he got reelected. I don't really know how to evaluate that question, those questions, because I'm, I'm not a public opinion expert. I'm not a political analyst. I would, will say this, if I were a member of Congress and I had sworn my own oath to the Constitution, I would find it very difficult not to look at this evidence and say, I have a duty to do something about this. But I understand that a lot of members of Congress look at this evidence and say, it's not that I disagree that this conduct is horrible and dangerous and anti-democratic, but I don't want to play into his hands by, you know, by acting on it in the face of certainty that the Senate will not remove him in a fashion that he will then capitalize on. So I don't really know how to evaluate the politics of it. Mm. I do think just speaking personally as a member of Congress who had sworn my own oath, I would look at this evidence and say, what am I here for if, this, if I'm going to say that this is acceptable in some way? Yeah, they're in a tough spot because let's just grant that there's certainly an argument for it being politically inopportune to impeach only to have it get shot down by the Senate. And, and you can just well imagine how that will get spun and how that will energize Trump's base. So, and yet that seems to just subordinate the, this 
deeper issue of fidelity to the Constitution to near-term political concerns, and it's easy to see how the idealists will want to impeach, even though it's a, it's a doomed errand. I, I mean, I do think, can I, can I just say that there is a perhaps viable middle ground, which is, so one of my fears about not impeaching him is that the House does not clearly state for the record that these crimes, these offenses are in fact high crimes and misdemeanors and would warrant an impeachment. And I worry that for the House not to do anything conveys the acceptability of this behavior in a president. Mm. And I do think if you're not going to impeach him, you should have a resolution, you know, during the Clinton period, we called it a resolution of censure that lays out the offenses and says that the Congress regards them as impeachable, but chooses to satisfy itself with a resolution of censure. And I think doing that would at least mark the territory, if you behave this way, we reserve the right to impeach you. Mm -hmm. Right. Finally, Benjamin, and um, now I see we're, we're out of time, but um, if any fans of the president have followed us this far down the rabbit hole and imagine that our interest in doing this postmortem and the conclusions you've drawn, that all of this is just a symptom of partisanship and confirmation bias, and really, you know, that this president has been so unfairly maligned by his political opponents. You and I are guilty of rattling around our own echo chamber that has been largely defined by our diet of fake news. Honestly, I've almost given up even trying to formulate a thought that I think will survive transport to the other side of this conversation, because I, I found it so sanity straining to be in dialogue or apparent dialogue with people who really can't seem to see that there's anything at all wrong with this president. But is there anything you can think to say to try to reboot the brain of somebody who thinks there's no there there where we've gone? You mean other than with Cromwell's letter to, I forget which dissenting church, I beseech ye in the bowels of right. Christ, think that you may be mistaken? Yeah. Other yeah. than that, right. yeah, I think a couple things. So first of all, go through the exercise of reading the executive summaries of both volume one and volume two of the document. And every time you see the name Trump, change it in your mind to Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, or Hillary Clinton. Imagine that this document came out about a Democratic president. Imagine, just go through the exercise of imagining how you would react to this body of material if it were not about somebody who you had this commitment to. And imagine how terrifying it would be if it were somebody whose democratic commitments, and here I mean small d democratic commitments, mm -hmm. to the institutions and values of the country you were afraid of and nervous about. That this person was 
on a on a long-term basis engaging with an adversary intelligence service of the country albeit not in a conspiratorial fashion that you can charge was encouraging that adversary intelligence service to hack his opponent's emails was engaging trying to have his campaign engage with those hackers to retrieve those emails, didn't quite manage that, was planning strategy around the release of those emails by a criminal organization like WikiLeaks, was, and then was lying about it the whole time. And then when the whole matter came under investigation, engaged in the pattern of behavior that, that this report describes with respect to the institution that was investigating it. Imagine that that report were issued and just change the name of the country, change the name of the candidate, and ask yourself, would I find this acceptable? And I think if you can answer, if you, can, if you go through the exercise of doing that, you will, and you do that honestly, it is very hard to read this document and say, this is an acceptable way for a candidate and then a president to behave. The second point I would make is about your invocation of the term fake news. The media gets a lot of criticism in this country, and some of it is deserved. There is no institution that comes off better in the Mueller report than the print media of the United States. Mm. And, and this has not gotten enough attention, and it really should. Certain newspapers did incredible reporting that got to an enormous amount of this material over the last two years. And one of the reasons that this document isn't more shocking than it is, is the amount of it that has already been in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, in the Wall Street Journal, and in the much maligned BuzzFeed News, mm-hmm. which did you know, some incredible reporting that is you know, all of these organizations have had major reporting projects that are substantially validated by this report in, in pretty dramatic ways. And so I, I will say that one thing I would hope is that, and I, I say it, I'm not being naive, I don't believe this is going to happen, but that, you know, there are certain organizations that should, we should have more confidence in as a result of their performance in this. And, you know, BuzzFeed famously got a big, big thing wrong, you know, with respect to one aspect of this report. They also got a lot right. Yeah. The whole Trump Tower Moscow story is a BuzzFeed news story. And I, I just think that we should come away with this with an admiration for the way certain mostly elite news organizations have performed and a heightened trust in the in the substance of what they report going forward. Mm. Well, that's great. I will um, beseech our audience in the bowels of Christ that they follow your first injunction and uh, read those executive summaries because they are illuminating. And swapping the word Trump for Clinton should perform an exorcism on your concerns about partisanship here. And, you know, I think the Cromwell warning in general, which is, you know, uh, differently stated, is you know learned hands famous injunction that the spirit of liberty is a spirit that's not too sure it's right is a good 
important thing to remember in periods of intense political polarization where you're 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 just so sure that anything that screws the people you hate most mm. must be good and must be true even if it's not good and not true and i think the value of a document like this is that it creates a record and it creates a record of truth and you can argue about what the consequences of that truth are but read the document with an eye toward the question of what is true and that will help well, Benjamin, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. This has been incredibly helpful. Before you go, just tell everyone where to find you online. I am uh, findable always on Lawfare, uh, where I do most of my writing. I also write regularly for The Atlantic, and I can be found on Twitter at, at Benjamin Wittes. Excellent. Keep going, Benjamin. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure talking with you. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, like my Ask Me Anything episodes, as well as the bonus questions from many of these interviews. You'll also get advanced tickets to my live events. You'll find all of these things and more at samharris.org. And thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it possible.